Hello, food nerds. Welcome back to another episode of Literally Delicious. I'm Nick. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really, really appreciate you all listening and for all the positive comments you leave on Instagram and on the various podcast platforms. It really means a lot to me that you all enjoy the pod. So thank you so much again for your support. We are finally done with Huckleberry Finn, and we're jumping ahead in literary time considerably today, covering a novel from 2003 on the podcast. And that novel is The Namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri. I had been meaning to read this novel for a while before I picked it for the podcast, and when I finally got around to it, just wow. I really love this book, and I'm super excited to recreate a famous dish from the book today. That dish is a spin on a street food made in West Bengal and other states of India called Jalmuri. But I will be making something close to the stuff served in the streets of India, not saying that I'm going to make anything just like it, in addition to the novel's version, so that we may compare the two versions together. So today, in other words, I'll be making two approximations of this famous snack and sharing some interesting food facts along the way. So how about we get started? For those unfamiliar with the book The Namesake, it's a novel that follows the Ganguli family throughout the journey of their lives, starting with the birth of their son, who is named Gogol. The novel, as its title suggests, has a lot to do with the story of the baby boy's name, which pays respect to Russian novelist Nikolai Gogol. In Bengali culture, it is commonplace for people to have two names, a pet name and a good name. Gogol is the baby boy's pet name, which is used only by the family and close friends. So as not to give away any spoilers, I won't tell you how Gogol got his pet name, nor what his good name is in the end. You'll just have to pick up the book for yourself and find out. The novel opens with a bit of a description of Ashima and Ashok Gugili's, Ganguli, excuse me, arranged marriage in West Bengal and their move to Cambridge, Massachusetts in the year 1968. The young family moved from what was then called Calcutta in West Bengal to the United States for Ashok's PhD studies at MIT. But before we even get into that part of the background story, we get the really famous food scene from the novel. At the very, very start of the novel, we meet a very pregnant Ashima making herself a snack that is a, quote, humble approximation of the snacks sold for pennies on Calcutta sidewalks and on railway platforms throughout India, spilling from newspaper cones. That snack, as mentioned at the top of the episode, is called Jalmuri. Jal loosely translates to spicy, while Muri is a puffed rice from Bangladesh and Bengal, and Ajima misses it dearly as she gets used to her new life as a wife and soon a mother in the United States. She so loves this snack that it's written in the text that even now that there is barely any space inside her, it is the one thing she craves. And read barely space inside her as super, super pregnant folks. In fact, her water breaks as she's making the snack in the opening pages of the novel. The dish is a minor symbol in the novel, getting another reference later on when Ashima and Ashok and Gogol move from Cambridge to a Boston suburb. In moments of upheaval, Ashima returns to her beloved snack, and this is quite the upheaval. Quote, for Ashima, migrating to the suburbs feels more drastic, more distressing than the move from Calcutta to Cambridge had been. She is stunned that in this town, 
there were not sidewalks to speak of, no street lights, no public transportation, no stores for a mile at a time. So even though she's not pregnant, Ashima returns to this snack, and on the very first page of the novel, we get her recipe. A combination of Rice Krispies cereal and planter's peanuts and chopped red onion in a bowl. To this, she adds salt, lemon juice, thin slices of green chili peppers. But, as usual, the text states, something is missing. I think this is a very significant line of the text for the reading of the snack as a symbol of missing something. Be it your old home far away, or a loved one thousands of miles away in that old home, or even an ingredient from your homeland that you cannot get in your new home. And for Ashima, she is wishing for one ingredient in particular, mustard oil. Mustard oil is a major component of Jalmuri, along with the puffed rice, peanuts, chili, onion, and lemon juice that Ashima does add to her mix. For reference, Jalmuri may contain a multitude of different ingredients, and each recipe I've come across is unique in its composition. The ingredients may be, but are not limited to, diced cooked potatoes, cucumber, tomatoes, sprouted chickpeas, ginger, coconut, green chili paste, boiled motor, which are yellow peas, chanachur, a spicy mix of fried lentils, chickpeas, little crisps made of chickpea flour, corn, fried onion, and curry leaves. Bujia, a crispy snack that is made using moth bean flour and a spicy mix called baja mashla. So there's quite a lot there, and some recipes call for all of this or only part of it. It seems like each different street vendor has their own recipe too. But they all have in common that one ingredient that Ashima misses so badly. Mustard oil. With the recipe given in the work of literature itself, you may be wondering, well, what is Nick going to talk about for the rest of this episode? Well, food nerds, don't worry. This is not the end of the episode. It's only the beginning. Our episode today really centers around this one question. Why can Ashima not get any mustard oil? And it's a more interesting question than you may think, exposing the outdated red tape present in United States food and drug safety legislation that more often than not confuses Americans rather than keeps them safe. And on top of that, it perhaps keeps them from branching out and trying certain dishes that use mustard oil, dishes from South Asian, Chinese, and Korean cuisines, just to name a few general categories. The use of mustard oil is more commonplace in cooking throughout the world than you think. Mustard is a member of the brassica genus, which includes cabbage, boom, cabbage fact there, kale, broccoli, cauliflower, turnip, and many more food plants. Its seeds can be pressed to form a pungent and spicy oil, which is prized for its flavor and the way the fat in it coats your mouth. That fattiness, however, is the root of its controversy in the United States. Mustard seeds and other seeds of brassica plants contain uricic acid, which is a type of fatty acid that lab experiments on rats in the 1950s indicated might cause heart problems. Today, when you find pure mustard oil in stores, it must be labeled for external use only, per Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, mandates. Though according to an article by Indrani Sen from the New York Times, the agency doesn't regulate the oil and can't dictate how it's displayed in stores. The same article also says that in New York food health inspections, the restaurant could be cited for showing that they have mustard oil or putting mustard on the menu, but 
representative for the health department said that no citations were ever recorded. Though the FDA only banned the import and sale of mustard oil as a food product as of the mid-1990s, which is after the book is set, there were immediate effects of these animal experiments. According to Nick Sharma for Serious Eats, Canadian scientists created canola oil out of the fallout of the mustard seed oil studies. And canola oil is actually a combination of the words Canada and ola, the old English word for oil. And they did this by extracting oil from rapeseed plants that had been produced with extremely low levels of uracic acid. And you can bet that from now on on this podcast, I will be referring to canola oil strictly as Canada oil. The Canadian researchers made the final strain of rapeseed plants for their new oil in the mid-1970s. So it's clear the concern about uracic acid and oils made from brassica plants had developed quickly after those original 1950s studies. But how concerned should we be about the human consumption of mustard oil? In the Sen article referenced before, the chairman of the nutrition department of the Harvard School of Public Health is quoted saying, the potential hazards are based on animal studies. And to my knowledge, we don't have real evidence of harm to humans. The risk of mustard oil to humans has never been definitively proven. And according to a 2004 study in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, Indians who ate mustard oil actually had a lower incidence of heart disease than those who did not. I found this article cited in the Send piece as well, which I will definitely link for you in the episode description. In sum, mustard oil may, have, may present some health risks as well as health benefits, but what oil could we not say the same thing about, really? The truth is that, for Jal Murray at least, the amount of mustard oil used is not very much at all. You can decide if you want to find and use mustard oil if you make the recipe that I'll demo in a few minutes, but for me at least, it seems very significant that Lahiri works into the first page of her novel that Ashima misses this one single ingredient so much. So I will use it for my approximation of Bengali John Murray in this episode. I don't want to read too much else into the other missing ingredients from Ashima's version of John Murray. You might wonder if it wasn't possible for Ashima to get all the ingredients she needed to make a more Bengali-esque John Murray. Though I couldn't find out for sure if any Indian groceries were open in Cambridge in the late 1960s, though I did look for these in the news sources, I don't think that the missing ingredients held Ashima back from making a Jal Murray. Uh, the text states later on that Ashima, Ashima makes a lot of food during her time in Cambridge, including various curries and samosas, so I believe that the ingredients are there somewhere. But as you will hear shortly, Jal Murray is spicy stuff, and we have to remember that Ashima is very, very pregnant. Eating spicy food can cause heartburn and other kinds of digestive discomforts, and I can only imagine how this might be amplified when you're pregnant, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Even though Ashima and Ashok appear to be partaking in foods from their old home in West Bengal, their lives feel split between two places, Calcutta and Boston. The differing American and Bengali cultures lead to episodes of confusion and even shock as they go through their daily lives in the United States, but their lives are not depicted as being particularly conflictual with other Americans. The namesake does not have any scenes, to my memory, of explicit racism in it, but it does, however, include a few scenes where prejudice or implicit bias 
are present. And for that, I, I really appreciate Lahiri's nuanced approach to the topic. But my research did bring up some problematic language and news sources of the time that may have had an impact on the lived experience of Bengalis immigrating to the United States in the 1960s, and I'd like to share just a little bit about those two news articles now. The first is from a Boston Globe news piece from November 11, 1964, titled Pakistan, Tinderbox, Bengal. The headlines in those days were not very descriptive or helpful, but the first line from that piece reads, quote, Back when India was seeking independence from Britain, the emotional, hot-blooded people of Bengal made the British nervous. The piece continues, It was Bengali nature to react violently at times and maybe toss a bomb. The main idea of the piece was to describe, in this charged language that you hear, the cause for unrest not only between India and Pakistan, but also between East and West Pakistan, which had been partitioned as such by the British. The article was not critical at all of the way the Indian subcontinent had been divided when granted, uh, when it received its independence, I should say, from the colonizing British as the cause of the conflict between East and West Pakistan, but rather attributes the unrest to this, quote, Bengali nature, as well as the fact that much of Pakistan's government and foreign trade centralized in its Western territory, which, again, I think points back to the problems of partition, but I digress. This reductive and essentializing rhetoric is quite scary to think about from a 1960s immigrant's perspective, I would think, since their American neighbors were informed by these media sources, and they were told in those media sources that Bengalis were violent and prone to throwing bombs. And this is just the one source that I found from the Boston Globe, which would be the most relevant daily news outlet for the setting of the namesake. And so I can't tell you for sure how strong this narrative of Bengali people being violent was throughout the rest of the United States. But this is a, a serious a, a accusal to throw at Bengali people, isn't it? And the other news source I wanted to share with you is also from the Boston Globe, dated February 16, 1969. This article by Richard Weintraub gives an overview on the state of Indian politics, where the governing Congress party was losing traction in Bengal at this time in favor for more left-leaning political parties, and the Globe piece comments on the riots in Calcutta as a sign of the rising chaos stemming from the communists within the United Front. Bengal politics was heavily influenced, or excuse me, Bengal politics were heavily influenced by Chinese communism, and Weintraub speaks to the American fear of communism spreading further out of China and the Soviet Union when he writes, quote, should the communists or a small segment of them decide to make trouble, Bengal is the likely area. Eventually, in 1977, the Communist Party of India would win a majority of seats and become the ruling party of the state of West Bengal. It would be the longest-serving democratically elected communist government in the world when it was finally voted out in 2011. But, again, from the Bengali immigrants' perspective, those who just arrived to the United States in the late 1960s, and especially college-age people, may have been looked upon with suspicion because of the United States' fight against communism throughout the world and within its own borders. And I am aware that this is only subtext for the namesake, a novel that doesn't very much focalize issues of explicit racism, and nor does it have to. You know, books don't always have to discuss the negative sides of immigrant experience. 
Whether or not the political climate of the 1960s played into the daily lives of Bengali people is something that I should continue to do research on because I don't know for sure. But regardless, I think that when I'm researching immigrant foods, I ought to educate myself on what was going on in the world at the time of, of the writing, which was impacting the reason for these people immigrating to the United States. And so, as the fictional characters Ashok and Ashamu move from Calcutta to Cambridge to pursue educational opportunities, so many Bengalis also traveled thousands of miles for the opportunity to start a new life in the United States. I think it goes without saying that creating a new life is difficult at times. I will return to immigrant stories in today's last bite, but now let's get into the kitchen and make Jal Murray, the namesake style. If you want to follow along with me, go to Instagram at literallydelishpod. That is at L-I-T-E-R-A-L-L-Y, delishpod, to find the recipes that I am going to make today, two versions of Jal Murray. And without further ado, let's just get right into it. I'm going to head to the kitchen, so why not read it? Why just read it when you can eat it? Let's get going. Welcome back to the kitchen where today I am making two versions of Jal Murray, which is the Bengali dish that Ashima is approximating with the ingredients that she has in Boston at the beginning of Jhumpa Lahiri's The Namesake. So I'm going to begin with something similar to, as best as I can do, a Bengali uh, snack called Jal Murray, and this is a famous street food on the streets of Calcutta. And since I can't make it all the way to Calcutta, sorry, I'm going to try my best to recreate it in my kitchen using ingredients that, uh, for the most part, I was able to source at my local grocery store with some special ingredients that I got from my uh, South Asian grocer, which I'll tell you about here in just a minute. So, previous to my beginning this recording, I boiled two yellow potatoes, peeled after they cooled down, of course, and diced those and put those into a bowl. Along with that, the murray, which is puffed rice. And I got that from the uh, Indian grocery store. And I wanted to make sure that that was super crisp whenever I put that so that it remains as crisp as possible whenever you are enjoying it. So. Because of that, I, I made sure I also dried off any extra liquid on the boiled yellow potato. To the dry team, I also added an ingredient called sev, which I believe is made from chickpeas. They look like little uh, chickpeas sticks, and I'll make sure I send a picture of that along with the recipe on our Instagram after today's episode. And then to the dry team, I also added a half cup of dry roasted peanuts. So the dry team has already been assembled with the exception of uh, baja masala, um, which is a toasted spice mix, which I have going right now on low in a cast iron. It is a tablespoon of whole fennel seeds, a tablespoon of whole cumin seeds, a tablespoon of coriander seeds, and two cardamom pods. 
So I've got those roasting over low and they're gonna take about 10 minutes to get to golden brown and very fragrant. It smells so good in my kitchen right now. And while that roasts away, I'm going to get started on the, I'll call them wet ingredients, but they're vegetables. So for our purposes here, they are wetter ingredients than the ones that we've used. I'm taking a small red onion, dicing it very finely. Okay, you wanna make sure that all the ingredients in your snack are roughly the same size in, in you know, their pieces. So that just makes it a nicer presentation. And I'm using one onion for both of the Jalmeries that I'm making today, including Ashima's Jalmeri. Hope you're enjoying the conversation that my hallmate is having. Okay, to the red onion, I'm adding one jalapeno pepper, very thinly sliced. And I've taken the seeds out of this jalapeno pepper. You can, of course, leave yours in if you'd like it a little bit spicier. The reason, food nerds, in case you were wondering about why the cast iron skillet, well, um, I could have done this in a nonstick, sure, but I don't know if you've ever noticed this. When you cook nonstick skillets and you don't have anything liquid inside, so they're on the heat, but they're dry, they start smoking, and that gas, I, I don't know this for sure, but I, I would figure that it's not the best for you. So the cast iron avoids all of the potential gas going into your kitchen, and that is what I'm choosing to toast my dry seeds and, and different spices on. I did, I did not add any oils to this, so this is a dry roast. Okay, so I just chopped up a jalapeno pepper, Next up, an English cucumber that I'm just going to slice thinly. Actually, I changed my mind. I'm gonna half it and then dice it. Seeds and all. Okay. And some tomatoes. If you're gonna use like Roma tomatoes or tomatoes on the vine, you're gonna to wanna to make sure you take the seeds out of them first. I'm using grape tomatoes here that I'm just quartering. And again, just trying to get everything roughly down to the same size. When researching this dish, I was just kind of blown away by the number of different variations, which is why I don't claim to be making anything authentic to what you would get in the streets of Calcutta. I just wanted to get somewhere in the ballpark so that I could taste the dish with the similar spices that uh, Ashima didn't have as she was making her approximation of Jal Murray. It was just very fun as well to go to a grocery store that I'd never been to before and to procure some ingredients that I wasn't familiar with. And as I 
as you have heard already in the first part of this episode, which you've listened to, right? If not, go back. This isn't going to make any sense to you. So as I was doing the research on all these ingredients, it's just being in an environment that I had never been in before was something really, really good. Really, really interesting. Okay, so I've got my wet team, as it were. I'm also going to chop in half a lemon for some lemon juice. What you're hearing me do right now is just finish up the cucumber. Okay, so our veggies are done. Our spices are looking pretty toasty. I'm gonna give those another minute. Well, I tell you about this next ingredient that I'm going to add. Well, it's actually a couple different ingredients. Bay leaf, pretty common one. I wanna roast that until it becomes crumbly in texture. It doesn't take as long as the other spices, so that's why I'm going to take that out, the other spices that is, and then add the bay leaf in. Then, to my spice mix, I'm going to add Amchur, which is mango powder. Just a little bit of that, and then black salt. And that is going to finish out our spice mix for the gel murray, okay? I'm going to put all of these spices into my spice crusher, spice blender. There's a technical term for that, but it's escaped me right now, food nerds. So as you chew on that, I will get the spice mixer going and save you from having to hear that racket. Yeah, I, I don't want anyone to crash their cars hearing me turn on my spice mixer in the microphone. So I'll be right back with a spice blend. All right, food nerds, I just ground up all of those spices that I had toasting. And while I was doing that, I remembered that the word I was looking for was spice grinder. So if you shouted that out at me, thank you. You channeled some positive energies and I came up with the most obvious word. I should have known that. Uh, it's been a long week, food nerds. Thank you for bearing with me. So I ground all of those spices that I told you about to a fine powder with, um, I think I mentioned this already, a half teaspoon of mango powder, half teaspoon of cayenne pepper, and a full teaspoon of black salt. It's many of these ingredients you can procure at your local Indian grocer. So all of that spice mix goes into our bowl of the dry ingredients plus the veggies. And here's a little trick, food nerds, when you're trying to move spices from a pan into a smaller spice grinder, just put them on a sheet of uh, heavy-duty aluminum foil and then kind of make a little funnel. It's a really easy way to get your spices where you need them to go. Okay, now we are at a very important stage, some garnishes. So I'm chopping here a good bunch of cilantro, some cilantro leaves. Okay, I just wanna make these a little bit finer before I put them in, making sure that they're very dry so we don't make everything super soggy. Okay, in the swimming pool, the cilantro goes. 
to that. Let's now add a half of a lemon, it's juice, only it's juice, no need to zest. Okay, and to that, the most important ingredient, the one named by Ashima as the ingredient missing from her, John Murray, the mustard oil. And so, I'm going to open the mustard oil here for you all to get my experience. I've never used mustard oil before. It's pretty hard to come by. I got this at my local Indian South Asian grocer. And to smell, it is pungent and it smells like mustard, lo and behold. So, to our mixture, I'll add a tablespoon of mustard oil. Okay, and just give it a big stir. You want to make sure all of your ingredients are really well incorporated with that spice mix. This is looking like a really, really good snack. To serve, I am going to put these into little paper cups like you would bake uh, cupcakes into, and this is supposed to mimic, in a way, the newspaper which the John Murray is served in in the streets of Calcutta. So I'll make sure I post a picture of that, but I'm not going to taste the John Murray just yet. I'm going to make Ashima's version, and then I'll taste them side by side. So be right back for Ashima's version from Jhumpa Lahiri's the namesake of this Indian snack, which got her through so much, and I am ready to just completely dive into this Jal Murray. Be right back. Okay, food nerds, we're back, and now it's time to make Ashima's version of Jal Murray, and I am actually going to do something I don't usually do in this part of the podcast and read from the namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri, because I'm going to make this recipe just going off of the words on the page exactly. So, 1968, chapter one of the namesake. On a sticky August evening, two weeks before her due date, Ashima Ganguli stands in the kitchen of a central square apartment, combining Rice Krispies and planter's peanuts and chopped red onion in a bowl. She adds salt, lemon juice, thin slices of chili pepper, wishing there were mustard oil to pour into the mix. Ashima has been consuming this concoction throughout her pregnancy, a humble approximation of the snacks sold for pennies on Kolkata sidewalks and on railway platforms throughout India, spilling from newspaper cones. And as she makes it, food nerds, she thinks that uh, besides the mustard oil, something else is mixing. So she heads over to her cupboard to pick up more red onion where her water abruptly breaks, and then the rest of the novel unfolds. So, very simple concoction here. Rice Krispie treats, of which I'm going to pour out about a cup. Planter's peanuts, half a cup. Sliced green chili, I'm using jalapeno peppers. Half of a green chili here. 
and then diced red onion. I have another half of a red onion here in case I think that I need more, but just to stay truly true to the text, I won't add any more red onion because Ashma didn't either. Okay, a squeeze of lemon juice. I can hear it snap crackling and popping as it said it would. The box doesn't lie. Okay, and then a grind of sea salt or regular table salt, kosher salt, whatever you have, just not the black salt that we used in the uh, first John Murray recipe. Roughly a teaspoon. Okay, so I'm gonna mix this up. serve this alongside of our Jal Murray, which we made just a few minutes ago. So stay tuned for the taste test. Okay, food nerds, it's time to try. I'm joined here with Gab. Say hello, Gab. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Gab, have you ever read The Namesake? I have not, but I've read really good things about The Namesake and about the author. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jhumpa Lahiri is great. It's quickly become one of my favorites. So, Gab, what do you feel about trying some Jal Murray here? It's a snack food from India, in particular the Bengali region of India, served uh, for a very low cost on the streets. I have one version, which is my approximation of it using ingredients that I got from the Indian grocer and Ashima, who's the character from the namesake, her version of this made in 1968 with definitely 1960s era American <laughs> products. Get those Rice Krispies. Get those Rice Krispies. Can you hear the snap, crackle, and pop? Mm-hmm. Sure to the name. Or the tagline. Are you ready to try? Mm-hmm. Okay, so hand you anything. the first John Murray. And we'll give it a try. It's really good. A good snack. It's spicy. Mm -hmm. Do you like the spice? Yeah. It's not too spicy, but definitely has some heat. But the cucumbers add a nice cooling element. You should do the rest of the podcast. I really should. That's so true. The cucumbers, the tomatoes, are the freshness to the spicy notes. Really good. The little rice things. Whoa, it's about a spicy bite. Hold that thought. While you take a sip of water, I wanted to say that this has got mustard oil on it, which is marketed in the United States as for external use only. Hmm. So you're making internal that which is only allowed for external use. How do you feel about that? Um... I mean, I don't really trust many FDA regulations anyway, so. <laughs> Except for vaccines. Except for vaccines, yes. Get vaccinated, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> I just mean in terms of labeling food. I get that. But don't worry, I wouldn't put anything into your body that was not, or that was dangerous to you. Mm -hmm. 
If you go back, Gav, and listen to the first part of this episode, you will hear exactly why mustard oil has been labeled as such in the United States. I also have the benefit of being in the room next to you while you record. (laughs) (laughs) But this is very good. So I would no definitely snack on this. Okay. Let me get a sip of water here. The planter's peanuts are also... There are peanuts in here, yeah? Yeah. There is, yeah. Really nice. I wanted to be able to clear my palate of the different spices before trying Ashima's Virgin. So just to take a look at it, what do you notice first? Um, way less spices. Everything looks a bit drier. Um... Yeah, it looks more like a, like a more conventional trail mix than the first one. I mean, it's not hmm. conventional in yeah. terms of like nuts and seeds, but you know what I mean. You got what you're saying, one hundred percent. Want want to try it? Yeah. Dig in. What's the hit of acid? It's lemon, really good. Lemon juice. Mm. Let me get another bite. Is it weird to say that I kind of like it a lot? Almost better? I really like the acid in it. And like the peanuts and rice crispy combination is really good. But I do like the spice element of the first one. But I could definitely like eat way more of this yeah it's just i don't know it makes me feel i guess a sense of like wonder and a sense of you know like awe just to like the approximation of it Mm -hmm. but without the ingredients familiar to bengal the bengali region of india like this is like its own thing and it's still really wonderful yeah yeah it seems like it's probably a bit easier to put together mm-hmm. or much easier to put together mm-hmm. yum a little snap crackle pop and the red onions with the rice krispies surprisingly good sorry i just took a huge bite you don't usually use Rice Krispies in a savory thing. No. But this is definitely savory and a great snack. Maybe you can try it with Cocoa Pops next. <laughs> and on that note, I think we should end. <laughs> Bye, food nerds. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Literally Delicious. To get both of these recipes from today's episode, go to Instagram at Literally Delish Pod. If you have any suggestions for dishes or drinks from literature that you would like to see us make, uh, send us a quick email. Just include the name of the work, the name of the dish, and the name of the author to literallydelishpod at gmail.com. And looking forward to our next episode. So see you then, food nerds. Stay hungry. Thank you all so much again for listening to this week's episode of Literally Delicious. I'll see you all back here next week. But before you go, don't forget today's last bite. So the inspiration for today's last bite came through a story shared with me by Gab's dad, actually, who listens to the podcast weekly. 
along with Gab's mom. So thank you so much for listening and for your support and for sending the story that really spoke to me because this episode has been about immigrant food. And this is a European folk story about stone soup. So there's a lot of different variations on the stone soup story. But very basically, some travelers to a village carrying nothing with them but a cooking pot ask for some food when they arrive, and the villagers don't give these strangers any food whatsoever. So what the sort of smart and clever uh, villagers, or excuse me, the smart and clever travelers do is put a stone in some water in the pot over a fire and begin cooking it, and some curious villagers come along and ask what the travelers are doing. And the travelers respond that they're making stone soup, which tastes very good, but it's just missing something, just a little garnish it needs to help improve the flavor. So the villager, who wants to eat some of this amazing stone soup, doesn't mind, you know, giving away a couple onions or a couple carrots, whatever. And then as more villagers walk by and are told that making stone soup, they add some more ingredients that they have on hand until very uh, at the very end, the stone is finally removed and what is left over is a very delicious pot of soup that everyone, the strangers in the village and the villagers themselves get to enjoy. And so I just am struck by the moral of the story, I guess. It's a very moralistic, kind of like children's story that sharing is important. But more than that, it's it's the sharing of food. It's the sharing of a meal. And I think about this right now, especially with the the Russia and Ukraine war going on and and just the horrible situation where Ukrainians are fleeing the country and they're trying to seek refuge in many various different European countries and increasingly in the United States as well. And so with that in mind, I hope that the moral of the stone, the stone soup story to share, to share a meal, to be welcoming of a stranger is something that we take to heart in the uh, who knows how long, but hopefully uh, as more Ukrainians find refuge in other countries, they find welcome for as long as this terrible mess is going on and well on that note food nerds i'll leave you here for this week to think about that to chew on that and uh, just very excited to move on to next week's episode and to share more wonderful food stories with you thank you so much for listening stay hungry (music) 